Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 964. On this week's show, David Lorelo welcomes John Parado, longtime Pittsburgh Pirates reporter and David's old colleague at Baseball Prospectus back in the day. John has been covering the game long enough to recall the last time there was a labor stoppage in baseball, and he shares his thoughts about how our current situation compares to 1994. After that, we get all sorts of anecdotes about pirate sports legends, including getting to know Jim Leland, and that time Brian Giles took batting practice in his birthday suit. John also tells us what it was like to get to know Barry Bonds in the clubhouse, and how he had to earn the slugger's respect. You know, I didn't bother him every day. I, I didn't try to be a nuisance. But when I did need to talk to him for stories about things, he, he would talk to me. And he would, uh, and not only would he talk, but he would give good answers. And to this day, he's one of the best interview subjects I've ever, uh, I've ever encountered in, in, in over three and a half decades of covering baseball. He's a, a very, very interesting guy when he wants to be. But before we get to this conversation and these stories, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to head on over and check out the Fangraphs.com shop. It is not only the place to get your Fangraphs merch, but you can also grab an ad-free membership for yourself or as a gift for a friend. This is the best way to both browse a site and to help us keep doing everything we're doing. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is John Parado, longtime Pittsburgh sports scribe, mostly Pittsburgh Pirates sports scribe, and some years ago, both a colleague and my editor at Baseball Prospectus. John, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Oh, my pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. You probably remember those BP days once upon a time, 12, 15 years ago. It's been a while now, hasn't it? Uh, 2010. Uh, so yeah, going on 12 years. Where does the time go? I've been trying to figure that out for a while. I have been trying to figure out too where the time has gone with the uh, the lockout that we are dealing with. You, John, you've been covering the Pirates for, oh, heavens, for some degree, I think for nearly four decades. And as of right now, uh, we're talking on Wednesday, March 2nd. We don't even know if you'll be spending time at PNC Park this summer, right? I have no idea. And, uh, you know, after the events of uh, Tuesday, when, uh, you know, the day started, when it, it seemingly there was a at least a chance they were going to make a deal, the, uh, you know, the Major League Baseball owners and, and the Players Association, and it uh, devolved into uh, no deal being made that day, and that uh, will be canceling the first week of games uh, it's uh i don't know i i just don't know where it goes from here and it's it's very hard to predict hopefully we won't miss too many games at pnc park or any other ballpark in, in the big leagues this year but it's uh it's it's a very tough situation to predict right now you were covering baseball full-time the last time there was a strike a few decades ago you have told me that you expected that that would never happen again, yet somehow we are here. You know, David, uh, it was a catastrophic, I, I don't know if that's quite the word to use, but it, it was a nuclear event in 94 and 95, the strike. It wiped out the 94 World Series and, uh, you know, it led to replacement players being used in 95 when the owners, in spring training, when the owners were trying to put the heat on the players to, to break the uh, Break, uh, break the union and have players cross the uh, imaginary picket line in, in 95. And I thought once 
the strike got settled, which only got settled because of a Supreme Court or not a circuit court injunction, I, I thought everyone had learned their lesson, and the people in the game did then did learn their lessons. I mean, there's been pretty much labor peace ever since. There's been no work stoppages, and even most of the collective bargaining agreements since '95. Come, you know, we're, we're struck without a whole lot of acrimony and, uh, you know, cooperation on both sides. But, you know, I think what happens now, David, is this is 2022 and it, it's been 27 years since the last strike ended. And this is a pretty amazing fact that I hadn't thought of. And somebody, I, I wish I could give credit for who it was, said on Sirius, and I can't remember now, but on Sirius XM radio on their, on their Major League Baseball channel the other day, you know, the uh, controlling owners of what were then 28 teams in, in Major League Baseball before uh, Tampa Bay and Arizona came in, into existence as expansion franchises in 98, of the controlling owners uh, of the 28 teams, only one remains from 1995, and that's Jerry Reinsdorf for the White Sox. And, and obviously all the uh, all the players uh, who were still active in 95, none of those uh, players are, are still active players these days and, and almost uh, pretty much all of the union uh, you know, MLBPA people uh, weren't in those positions then either. So I think what has happened is everybody who was part of that history and learned their lesson from that history have moved on in life. And now you have a whole new generation of players and owners. And I, I say both, I'm, I'm not, you know, I mean, from both sides, they weren't around then, and they didn't learn that lesson. And now, uh, you know, all these years later, unfortunately, history, uh, in a sense, is repeating itself. On the subject of owners, the Pirates are, uh, by definition, a small market team. But it's not as though the owner is, is standing on a quarter with a tin cup. Yeah, I believe that his net worth is $1.1 billion. Do you have a feel for Bob Nutting's level of involvement in the lockout? No, I don't. And and he's a very behind-the-scenes person, even with the way he runs the ball club. He has not availed himself to the media, I think, one time he has in the last two years. Uh, so he, it's hard to gauge exactly how much pull he has among ownership, how much say he has in the negotiating strategy. But, uh, you know, I, I know, uh, you know, they, they do uh, always well, they don't cry poor so much publicly anymore because they know that falls on deaf ears, but they, they do like to play that small market angle. And, uh, you know, it is funny, though, you said about uh, saving money. You know, Bob Nutting, his family does own newspapers. That's how they, they made their fortune. And I, I do suspect he may clip the coupons out of the Sunday paper. So, uh, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll see what happens there. But you you, may, you wonder... It's just frustrating because, uh, like you said, he uh, does. You know, he doesn't have to seem a whole, have, seem to have a whole lot of level interest in the team, and the way it comes across to the fans here, and I, and I know Bob Nutting is not a, a you know a national type figure to fans all around the game, all around the country, is basically it's an investment for him, and he just wants to get the greatest story to rate of interest, uh, rate of return he can on the uh, on the investment. And if, if they win, that's just a nice little bonus, but it's certainly not a priority. As you know, John, I make trips, annual trips, really, in, in normal times to Pittsburgh. I go to see the Pirates for a few games at PNC. I have friends there. 
almost to a person, people who talk baseball with me there are negative about ownership and the Pirates currently. Do you get the same feeling that as much as any team in baseball, the Pirates probably do need new ownership? Yeah, I do. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the whole way it went down, uh, it, it just it was unseemly from day one with Bob Nutting in this ownership. He, uh, he was a minority owner when Kevin McClatchy owned the team. And Kevin was uh, a guy who really cared about baseball. He just truly did not have the money that most baseball owners have. But Kevin McClatchy was rich by common people's standards. He was a rich person, but by rich people's standards, he wasn't like an elite rich person with unlimited funds. So he did not own a majority of the team. He was the, uh, you know, he was the primary owner, but he didn't have a a 50% stake in the team. And what Bob Nutting did was bought up shares of a lot of very small, uh, small investors and ended up with over 50%. And he pushed uh, McClatchy out as owner and uh, he came in and uh, you know, basically strong arm his way into becoming the, the, the lead owner of the franchise. And, you know, it's, it's hard to gauge. The, the guy, when he does make himself available, he talks in circles and doesn't say anything. And, uh, you know, but he never, uh, he, never gives you the, he never gives you the impression that he really wants to win. He'll, he'll play this card when people say, well, Bob, you know, the perception is you don't want to win. And he'll say, well, that's an insult to me and my family. But he never says, I want to win either. He just said that. He just says, that's an insult to me and my family. And I've never heard the words come out of his mouth that said, you know, we want to put a good team on the field. We want to win. We want to win a World Series. I mean, he, and uh, it, you just you don't have that feeling. You just have the feeling like he's content to put a team out there, and they get quite a bit of revenue sharing money as a smaller market team, and and take the revenue sharing money and basically ensure they make a, a, a tidy profit every year instead of investing into the major league roster. And uh, you know, and it's and it's frustrating uh, to the fans, especially it, it, you know the Pirates haven't been to the World Series since 1979, David. That's 43 years <laughs> since they've been to the World Series, and they haven't even won a division title for 30 years now. 1992, uh, the the three years they made the playoffs in ni- 2013, 14, and 15, they were a wild card team. Uh, they didn't win the National League Central any of those three years, so. Uh, I mean, you know, you talk about different fan bases that are starved for championships, and I know there's there's some teams that have gone longer without a, a championship. The Cleveland Guardians, I should say, come to mind. It's the closest major league franchise to, to what we have here in the Pittsburgh area. And, uh, you know, I mean, the Pirate fans have <laughs> waited a long time for, for something to celebrate other than a, a wild card uh, game victory in 2013, which has really been the high watermark in, in the last 30 years. And I was at that wild card game, and it was absolutely electric, not even just in PNC, but really around the ballpark in the whole city. Attendance at PNC over that short stretch, three or four years where they actually became relevant again, I know topped over 2 million, maybe hit 2.5 million. The past few years, even without the pandemic, has, has been abysmal. Do you see fans starting to come back to PNC? as the team that Ben Charrington is building actually becomes competitive again? 
Well, I, I think so. I think, although this whole lockout dynamic, it's going to be interesting to see exactly how many fans it turns off permanently. And, you know, that remains to be seen. But I, I do think people see that Ben Charrington has a clear plan here. He he took over the team after the 2019 season. Then you had the pandemic shorten the 2020 season to 60 games. He didn't make a whole lot of changes between uh, 19 and 20. The only major change he made was trading Starling Marte to the Arizona Diamondbacks, uh, you know, the, the all-star center fielder. And he played it out with the players he had, and I think it was a good idea. He wanted to get a feel for exactly what talent he had on the big league roster. And even in 60 games, it became obvious that it was a team that wasn't good enough to win or even contend. And then that's when he began dismantling the team and trading for prospects. And, you know, I have no problem with that. Because uh, it wasn't like he was breaking up a championship team or even a, a 500 team. He was breaking up a bad team. And, you know, he's gotten a lot of prospects and a lot of people I respect from you know, Eric Long and Hagen at Fangraphs and Baseball America and MLB.com and, and what have you and Baseball Prospectus. They all rate the Pirates farm system now among the best in baseball because of the trades Ben has made. And also he's had some good drafts and they've uh, become much bigger players for some of the better talent, not the very top, top of the line, big money talent, but better talent in Latin America since, since Ben Charrington took over. And I do think people who understand baseball even a little bit, see the plan the Pirates have, seeing it develop, seeing that, hey, some of these guys in the minor leagues are, are very highly regarded and, and have a chance to to be really good players. And, and David, as you know, you've been in the game a long time. Uh, not all these prospects will pan out. Not all of them become stars, but, but they do seem to have a very deep reserve of talent in the minor leagues and some premium prospects. And if enough of them pan out, they should be pretty good in a couple of years. And uh, I think the hardcore fans here understand that. But I think the uh, the average fan or maybe the casual fan that goes to two or three games a year doesn't quite understand that and really won't give the Pirates the benefit of the doubt. But like I said, the, the fans, the season ticket holders, the people go to 15 or 20 games a year, the people watch a lot of the games on TV. I think they realize Ben Charrington has a good track record as a very good baseball executive, and the Pirates are pretty fortunate to have somebody of his caliber to be here in this situation to try to build a team. And, you know, the, the proof will, will come down the line whether he was right or not, but he certainly has a good plan. He's stuck to it, and, and it looks like it's, it's the type of plan that should come to fruition here in, in the future. And with talent in mind, you mentioned 1992 earlier, the last time in quite a while prior to the more recent stretch that of the Pirates going to the postseason. Barry Bonds won the NL MVP award that year. I believe it was his second one that he won with the Pirates. He then left as a free agent that winter, which really was the start of the franchise's slide. You should talk a little about Barry because you certainly knew him well covering the team in, in his Pirates years. You know, Barry was an interesting guy. Um, you know, I mean, we all know what a great player he was, and, you know, we, we can debate all day or question exactly some of the methods he used to become a great player. But I, I will say this, uh, 
when he was in Pittsburgh, he was by the time he finished in '92 after about six and, and two thirds seasons of his big league career. To me, he was a great player, and there certainly was no uh, steroid or pu- uh, performance enhancing drug questions surrounding him at, at that point in his career. And uh, he was an interesting guy, you know. And I know a lot of people know that he can have a prickly personality. I think everybody knew that was part and parcel of uh, Barry. And he could be tough to deal with. But uh, I'll also say this. He's one of the smartest players I've ever dealt with. And this will be going on my my 35th full season of baseball coverage uh, whenever this season ever gets started. And he's a hitting savant. He really, really is. And... His knowledge of hitting, the way he analyzes pitchers in his mind, and this is before all the numerical analytics, I mean, before you knew exactly how many curveballs a pitcher threw in a one, on a one-two count, and, you know, all the analytics are now so readily available to, to hitters uh, to learn about pitchers' tendencies. He computed all that in his head. I mean, he, he knew the pitchers in the National League inside and out, he knew how they were going to what he what they were going to throw on any almost every pitch. It was amazing when you would talk to him how he could anticipate exactly how pitchers were going to, to work him and he was really, really a, a a great all around player. And you know, I know people think about him as a slugger because he has seven hundred and sixty two home runs, the most in major league history, but he also was very fast when he came up to the big leagues. One the fastest players in the game. He was, uh, in my mind, the best defensive left fielder that I've ever seen. And I mean, not only did he have great range, uh, he was tremendous at getting to the left field line to cut balls off. The balls hit down the line that you thought, well, that's a sure double. And he was so quick to getting to the ball on the, at the line that he would hold hitters to a single. And uh, he did that so many times, it seemed like, over the years. But he was an interesting cat. He could be uh, he could be very uh, talkative when he wanted to be, and you could have great conversations with him about baseball or anything else. And and he really, I know people would be surprised on the outside. He actually did have a pr- pretty good sense of humor when, when the mood struck him. But he also could be tough to deal with, and he could be moody, and he could be rude to people, and he could be downright mean to people. And it was... And it was uh, sad because I think if he would have just been decent to people, he would have had the whole world eating out of his hand because, you know, he was such a great player. And he, he was, when when he wanted to be, he could be very charismatic. Uh, but, yeah, an inter- inter- interesting guy. Uh, and, you know, I, I was fortunate to have a good relationship with him and, uh, and, and even through his years in San Francisco. So, uh but uh, not everybody did, and not everybody has the same opinion of him that I do. But he, uh, he's, a, he's a very, very interesting guy, and like I said, one of the very smartest players I've ever met. And you gained his respect one time by standing up to him. Yeah, I. Uh, it was funny, you know. Uh, I it was spring training, and, and I'm almost certain it was 1989. It was either 1989 or 90, and I think it was 89. Uh, Barry didn't have enough time in; he didn't have the three years in to go to arbitration at that point. So he had to basically play for whatever the Pirates, you know, wanted to pay him. You know, the minimum or a little bit over minimum salary, I should say, and. Uh, you know, he um, he wasn't happy about it. They renewed his contract, 
Canada, which they had the right to do, the pirates. And so he decided he wasn't talking to the media. And I hadn't got, I was always went to spring training. I worked at the Beaver County Times, a suburban paper uh, north of the city. And we didn't go the entire six and a half, seven weeks to spring training. They would send me for like the last four and a half weeks when, when the exhibition games, the Grapefruit League games started. But I knew he wasn't talking to the media because the, the two Pittsburgh papers at the time had written about it and the TV stations that had gone down to Bradenton to, to, to report from spring training. All their reporters have mentioned that he wasn't granting interviews and talking to the media. So the first day I'm in the clubhouse, uh, I get to spring training. I happen to walk by his locker and he goes, dude. And I looked at him, I said, yeah, what's up? And he goes, dude, I ain't talking to the media. You got that? <laughs> and I just, I don't know what came over me, but I wasn't mad. I was more amused than, than mad about this. I mean, I wasn't upset though that he said that to me. And I looked at him, I went, Barry, did I ask you for an interview? And he goes, no. I said, well, then I guess it really doesn't matter if you're talking to the media or not, because I'm not talking to you either. <laughs> and he, uh, his head snapped back, and I don't think he was used to somebody talking to him like that, giving him uh, a little grief back when he would try to intimidate people. And, uh, you know, I, after that, I, I seemed to gain his respect, and he always treated me pretty well. And when I, you know, I didn't bother him every day. I, I didn't try to be a nuisance. But when I did need to talk to him for stories about things, he, he would talk to me, and he would, uh, and not only would he talk, but he would give good answers. And to this day, he's one of the best interview subjects I've ever uh, I've ever encountered in, in, in over three and a half decades of covering baseball. He's a, a very, very interesting guy when he wants to be. And if we fast forward a few years, John, to when he did leave the Pirates as a free agent, was there any chance that he was going to stay? Uh, no, the Pirates weren't, gonna, weren't going to pay him. But, you know, the picture that has been painted here over the years is Barry hated it in Pittsburgh. He couldn't wait to the minute he could get out of town. And that's not true. And, and, and if you ask him that to this day, and, you know, we're talking 30, you know, it'll be 30 years in October since he, he played his last game in a Pirate uniform, he never demanded he never said, I hate it here, I want out. In fact, it, you know, it was funny, during the 92 season, it was uh, sometime after the All-Star break, probably in August, if memory serves me right. After a game, uh, I talked to him, and to, to, to set a little background here, so before I get ahead of myself, the two Pittsburgh papers, uh, newspapers were on strike, so uh, you didn't have as much media as you normally would in the clubhouse after the game. So I had a chance, uh, was talking to him after the game. He'd been the star of the game. He'd had a big hit or what, whatever the reason, there was a reason to go talk to him about the game. So after we talked about that, I said, hey, I said, what would it take for you to stay here? thinking he was going to say, oh, I don't know, that's something for my agent to discuss, like normally a player would say in that situation. He goes, five years, $25 million, I'll sign tomorrow. And my head, I was kind of like, what? <laughs> I said, is that on the record? And he said, yeah, man, write it. Five years, $25 million, 
I'll sign tomorrow. So at the time, Ted Simmons, who's much obviously much more known for his playing ability, he just was inducted into the Hall of Fame last year, uh, was the general manager. And I, I think a lot of people, David, uh, forget that he did have a very brief, just a two-year stint as general manager here in Pittsburgh uh, in 1992 and 93. Well, anyway, this is in the pre-cell phone days, uh, so you just couldn't text somebody or call them on their cell. I get back to the press box, and I use the, the phone in the press box, and I called downstairs to the Pirates front office where, where Ted had his office, and he still happened to be in his office, and he answered, and I said, Ted, uh, you know, I just talked to Barry here a few minutes ago, and he said, if you give him five years and $25 million, he'll sign tomorrow. And Ted goes, oh, really? And you could tell he was excited. Like, he thought, my God, we might be able to keep the best player in baseball when everybody just generally assumes wouldn't be able to do it. So he called Mark Sauer, who was then the club president, and Mark Sauer, who had been brought in to to cut costs because the Pirates in 91, and I know people find this hard to believe, had the sixth highest payroll in baseball in 1991. So they weren't always cheap and they weren't always at the very bottom of the payroll standings uh they, they did spend money in the early 90s when they won three division titles in the national league east from 90 to 92 but they were on a, a, a payroll reduction kick and mark sauer told uh, ted simmons no we, we can't do that and uh that was the end of that so that the narrative that Barry wanted out of here, he never wanted to stay, isn't quite true. And if you ask Barry today, hey, what do you think would have happened if if they would have kept all those teams, uh, all those players together from those teams that, that won the division title? It's kind of wistful because I think he knows that they eventually would have burst through and won a couple World Series because they had a very talented team. They had Bobby Bonilla, who obviously had a very good career. They had Doug Drabeck, won the Cy Young Award in 1990. John Smiley, a left-handed pitcher, won 20 games in 91. They they truly had a heck of a team, and uh, they couldn't keep – they either couldn't or I should say more wouldn't keep the team together for the long run. And and ever since then – Except for a little three-year window there in the last decade, it's been uh, nothing but losing. And the Pirates had uh, one of the more underrated players in our lifetime, post-Barry Bonds, who I actually wrote about in my Sunday Notes column just very recently, which is Brian Giles. And I had also made a note that Giles in his career went 10 for 13, I believe it was, against Antonio Alfonseca. And uh, you chimed in on social media to say that you actually have a good story about Giles and Alfonseca. Yeah, I uh, I remember a night it was still uh, when the Pirates were still at Three Rivers Stadium uh, playing. Uh, it might have been the last year they were in Three Rivers, two thousand or the next to last year. One of anyway, Brian Giles hits a game uh, walk off home run off Antonio Alfonseca, who was pitching for the. I guess they were still the Florida Marlins at that point, now Miami Marlins, and uh, he hits home run to win the game. And uh, at the time, uh, covering baseball is a little different. I go on a little five-second five rant here. Today, everybody thinks if you cover baseball, you only cover your team and you never talk to anybody from the other teams. I don't look at it that way. I always try to get to both clubhouses so uh, and get perspective from both teams when I was, was covering uh, the Pirates. So I go over to the Marlins clubhouse, and, and Antonio Alfonseca is just getting ready to talk 
to the uh, media after I'd already done my interviews in the Pirate Clubhouse. So uh, Alf and Saken, I always remember this, and it just just and it's really one of those you really need a visual to truly understand how funny the story was with the facial expressions and the gesticulations he was making, waving his arms and and everything. But I, uh, you know, they asked me, said you know, you know what what happened on the home run, and he goes. And, you know, and again, I'm not making fun of his accent. Antonio was from Dominican, and obviously he had a, a, an accent. But he but he spoke good English. I mean, you certainly could carry on a conversation with him. And uh, he goes, I throw my best pitch, and he hit out of the ballpark. What can I do? I can do nothing. I throw my best pitch, he hit out of the ballpark. What can I do? I can do nothing. That is what I can do. I can do nothing. I can do nothing. And it was just so funny the way he said it, and he was just wildly waving his arms, and his eyes were getting big, and it just, it's like one of the most memorable post-game comments I ever had, and I, and I wish it would have been a day, uh, as much as I, I'm not a big video guy, and I don't like to video my interviews, and I think it's intrusive, and I guess I'm old school that way, that's one time where I wish I would have had cell phone video of, a, of an answer to a question, because it was... Uh, Really, uh, really, really comical. Uh, you know, it just, it was funny how, just how emotional we got answering it and, uh, how I uh, just, uh, and it was frustration. It was, uh, exasperation. It was everything thrown into one. And, and I didn't realize, I, I didn't know that Giles had had success off Alpha and Seca, but I didn't realize how much until you mentioned in that same column you just referenced that, that Giles was uh, 10 for 13 in his career for, against Alpha and Seca. And all these years later, that made me understand even more why he was so exasperated. And Giles, of course, absolutely wonderful hitter that I think a lot of people don't don't realize. I don't know if people in Pittsburgh really understood what they had. No, no, I, I don't think. And you know, when I when people say who are some of the greatest hitters in Pirates history, I mean, there, there's a lot of them, David. You know that. I mean, you start with Honus Wagner, Archie Vaughn, uh, Paul Wayne, or Lloyd Wayne, or Roberto Clement, and I know I'm missing people here. Max Carey, if you want to go back to the 20s. Uh, you know, Roberto Clemente, uh, Willie Stargell, uh, Dave Parker, Andrew McCutcheon. I mean, you know, you go through and there's been a lot of really, really good hitters, great hitters in, in Pittsburgh history. Giles, I, I know his, his aggregate numbers aren't quite what some of the other players are. And I should remiss not to say Ralph Kiner, of course, too, when it comes to home run hitters. His aggregate numbers aren't spectacular because he didn't play here as long as, as all those other players I mentioned, except for McCutcheon. But you look at his percentages, his ratios, I mean, his OPS plus, his slugging, his on base, uh, you know, home run per batch, you know, you go down any of those, uh, any of those type of statistics, any of those type of metrics. And uh, he had a tremendous run here for five, six years, however long he was here. It escapes me exactly off the top of my head how long. He had some major, major seasons that kind of got lost in the shuffle for the fact the Pirates weren't good during his time here. So they, you know, they didn't get on national TV a whole lot. They didn't get a whole lot of national publicity. But uh, he was uh, a heck of a hitter, and he was quite a personality, too. He was a... Uh, he was a uh, 
different kind of cat, as Joe Madden might call him. And, uh, and I remember the one time, uh, probably the highlight of his career, for me at least, was when he took batting practice naked in spring training. I don't know if we're going to top that story here, John. <laughs> well, it, it was weird. It, it rained for two days in Braden in the last week of spring training. And it must have been 2001, 2000. It was in the early 2000s. And uh, it rained and rained and rained and rained for two days. And all the games, you know, you couldn't even, you know, work out on the field and even take batting practice or anything. So... They hid in the indoor cages, so this is what he didn't take. He didn't take naked batting practice in public for for the fans to see, fortunately. But he did uh, take naked batting practice in the indoor cages at McKechnie, what was then McKechnie Field, the Pirates' uh, longtime spring training home in Bradenton, Florida, now known as uh, Leecom Park, which I. Just hate to say, but anyway, Brian decides he's going to live it up. The you know it's a dull couple days. There's not much they could do except hit in the cage. So he decides he's going to take batting practice on natural, and he gets somebody to tape 24 in adhesive tape or not adhesive tape, athletic trainers type tape. They put 24, which was his number, on his back. So here comes a naked ball player with wearing his number on his back in tape, taking batting practice with the helmet on. He didn't put a helmet on, so he wasn't completely naked. He had a helmet on. And it was one of the most bizarre things uh, I've ever seen. And, you know, people like to say you can't unsee this or you can't unsee that. Well, I can never unsee Brian Giles taking batting practice naked. I said, John, that we can't top that story. It's possible that we can if I ask you about Jimmy Leland, because I know that you have got a lot of Jim Leland stories. And uh, I also know that the best ones you probably cannot share on a podcast. No, Jim was a fascinating guy. And I, I tell you, uh, my first nine years as a baseball writer, I covered the Pirates. Jim was the manager those first nine years. The, the, the last nine of his, what was an 11-year stint, with the pirates, and uh, you know, he could be a little intimidating he, if, if you didn't know him. He could be gruff, and he could be kind of terse at times. And you know, my my my, my first meeting with him was actually uh, I became the uh, full time beat writer at the Beaver County Times in, in 1988, and in 1987 I I started covering the team uh, right around after the All Star break or uh, Steeler beat reporter had left and our pirate guy moved on to the to Steelers beat to cover football and I was put on the uh, baseball beat which I was very thrilled so anyway I introduced my I walk up uh, first uh, first time I'd ever met Jim Leland I've been, been at the ballpark a few times before uh, to do sidebars and some features but I wasn't a regular at the ballpark I wasn't a full-time baseball writer at that point and I introduce myself and I say, hi, I'm John Parado in Beaver County Times. I'm the new beat writer there. And uh, he, he looks at me and goes, so what? <laughs> I don't give a shit who you are. And I was just like, <laughs> I wanted to just die. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster. The managers <laughs> told me, you don't give a shit who I am. And I'm thinking, this isn't good. And then, like, two minutes later, he goes, sees me in the clubhouse. He goes, hey, you know, I was just messing with you. He goes, it's really nice to meet you. So that was kind of the kind of guy he was. He could be gruff, but he also was very funny. And, uh, you know, he, he was just such a character. I mean, just uh, 
you know, you just don't have as many characters in the game. He he had managed in the minor leagues with the Tigers for, I, I believe, it was over, it was like 15 years, 14, 15, 16 years. I mean, he, you talk about a baseball lifer and you talk about people paying their dues. Jim, Jim Leland paid his dues. He managed in the minor leagues for a long, long time. And he was never bitter about it. He never was one of those guys that said, well, you know, I should have been here sooner. I got, you know, I, I, I didn't get a fair shake. He had, and he had a million great stories about managing the minor leagues and all the different situations he encountered and all the different towns he was in and all the different players. And he, he was a great storyteller and he had a, a great sense of humor and he was a I'd say in the past, I mean, he is, and he's a, a tremendous baseball man. I mean, he, he truly knows the game inside and out. But a, a funny guy, like I said, he could be gruff. And, you know, I think everybody knows he wasn't very good when he managed it, hiding the fact that he was smoking in the dugout when you'd see his hand cupped and smoke coming out of a cupped hand. You kind of knew what was what was in that hand. And, uh, you know, it just, uh, he had there's so many funny stories uh but, but I guess the best ones were when he when when he didn't try to be funny when when he would get upset and he would he would get angry and uh, he he truly uh, he he could get really mad and uh, I remember uh, one time uh, the Pirates had a pitcher Paul Wagner who uh, was a wonderful guy he really is and uh, you know I like uh, I like Paul in fact I still keep in touch with Paul to this day and he's been out of the out of the big leagues probably twenty years now and. Uh, Paul was having a rough uh, go of it one season in Pittsburgh, and he had like three or four starts in a row that that were, uh, you know, went from not very good to to just outright terrible. And so we had to ask the question, you know, Wags was struggling, and and Jim, uh, you know, will he stay in a rotation, or or you got to, you know, make a change? And he goes, (laughs) and Leland pondered it for a minute, and his face started getting red, and you could tell he was getting mad. And he goes, he's out. He's out of the rotation. He's out, 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 U-O-T, out. He was so mad that he spelled out wrong. He spelled it U-O-T instead of O-U-T, and it was it was really really comic one. I mean, we, we couldn't dare laugh being in his office because he was so mad. But I mean, you talk about doing everything you could to stifle for, from laughing out loud. Uh, that's one. And uh, yeah, I remember when the, the Pirates uh, we talked to, you know, we talked a little earlier about uh, breaking that uh, championship team of the early 90s apart. And uh, I don't think I've ever saw anyone in my life matter than uh, the day that the Pirates traded John Smiley in uh, spring training in 92 to the, the Twins after he was coming off a 20-win season. And uh, that was the one time I, I truly thought he was going to have an aneurysm or a stroke or something. And I'm not saying that lightly. I mean, it's funny in retrospect, but but it wasn't at the time. Uh, a reporter from uh, one of the uh, papers uh, locally, I believe the Sarasota paper, uh, yeah, I believe it was, yeah, from the uh, Sarasota paper, asked him uh, about the trade and said, you know, that Ted Simmons was the general manager and, and basically uh, said that Ted Simmons had said he traded Smiley because they wanted to, to give Vicente Palacios, who was a pitcher they had signed from the Mexican League a few years earlier, a chance to be a starter every day in the big leagues. And uh, Jim uh, went on a rant about, I'm the field manager. I'll decide who's going to pitch when, who's going to pitch in what role, who's going to be in the rotation, who's going to be in the bullpen. 
and his face got redder and redder till it became purple. And I was the one time I really honestly thought he was going to have a stroke. He was so, so upset and just so, uh, so, uh, angry, but, but Jim was, was a great guy. He re- really had a, a soft side to David. He was very emotional and he was known to cry after, you know, particularly, uh, good wins, emotional wins, games where teams would come, news teams would come back. And, uh, he was a, a very, very, uh, interesting guy and, and a good guy. And, uh, you know, I'll say this. Uh, I was very, very blessed to break into the big leagues with him as a manager because after he tested me my first season and uh, he was tough on me and, uh, you know, there were times I thought, would I ever ask a, a question that, that's even remotely, you know, coherent or, or good? It just seems like everything I ask, he kind of snapped at me. So I asked him the last day after my first season, I said, Jim, I said, I just got one question for you. I said, did I ask even one remotely good question all season? And he laughed and he goes, yeah, you ask a lot of them. He said, but you're a rookie. I had to give you a hard time. He goes, it'll be different after this. And after that, I was gold for forever after, after that. It was really, uh, he's treated me great. And to this day, I consider him a real, really good friend. And uh, he's a, he's a great, great person a great baseball man and i'm uh very fortunate to have known him and uh he's uh he, he's uh he's one of a kind he's a great manager i think he proved that he won everywhere he was except the one year in colorado which was a disaster which he'll readily admit and you know i think he's someone i know you know the one knock on him is he only won one world series and all the year he managed but i do think he's someone that the hall of fame really should consider for uh for induction i think uh I think he was uh, certainly one of the best managers of his era and uh, a very a very interesting, uh, complex, uh, and good guy uh, who uh, I'm glad that our paths crossed uh, early in my career and uh, that we still have a good relationship to this day. And I concur completely that he belongs in the Hall of Fame someday. John, there are so many more things we could talk about, but we are running out of time. We have segued from... Uh, talking about things that should make all of our faces turn purple, you know, which is a lockout to some great stories. And on that note, I will thank you for being a guest on Fangraphs Audio. Oh, my pleasure, David. Thank you so much for having me. It was good to, good to talk with you. Hopefully I will see you at PNC this summer. If uh, all goes well, you know, let's settle this unnecessary lockout. Yes, I certainly hope so, sooner rather than later. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very unfortunate, it's a very sad situation. It's very frustrating. And hopefully, uh, hopefully after a couple, a little bit of time to cool off, both sides can get back together and uh, bridge the gaps they have and uh, get going on spring training in the season. And perhaps Bob Nutting is a Fangrass audio listener, and he's going to hear this and uh, make a few phone calls. So <laughs> we, we can always hope. <laughs> we can always hope. Everybody should be a Fangrass audio listener. Thank you, everybody, once again for listening to Fangrass audio, and have a good weekend. This has been Fangrass audio. Thank you to John Parado for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider telling a friend or two about it. It helps us out. Don't forget to check out that Fangraphs.com store and also sign up for our newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on everything we have going on at the site, free to your inbox every weekday. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you next time.